Hello, and again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is... Mark Weinstein. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm, uh, in a weird way, like a fan. Like, I don't know if <laughs> the... <laughs> like, You're making me blush. <laughs> um, so, first of all, who are you? What do you do? Uh, so, my name is Mark Weinstein. Um, I do many things. Um, predominantly, if we're talking about what I do for work, um, I'm the host of the Look Up podcast, which is a podcast that explores what it means to be a human today um, in this unique place and time with the advent of social media and our relationship to technology and each other. Uh, in addition, I'm a startup advisor and investor, uh, predominantly in media, blockchain, and impact spaces. Um, and I'm also a 200-hour certified yoga instructor who leads Breathworks online and uh, teaches asana classes and all that jazz. Uh, but I've always struggled with the question of what do you do? Um, right. <laughs> because I like to do a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess let's start on the, uh, I guess, the tech thing. Well, actually, no, let's just start with the podcast. First thing you kind of mentioned. Uh, yeah. What is the lookup and you kind of mentioned what it means to be a human in these times, but, um, everyone kind of has a podcast nowadays. So what kind yeah. of separates yours from all of the other, uh, randomness? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I think I'm really trying to figure that out still. I'm guessing that maybe you are too. Um, you know, for me, it's just, it started off as a journey exploring the human relationship to technology through social media. Um, and I think if we look at kind of this, the state of politics in the United States, the state of global political unrest, um, mass confusion, polarization, uh, depression amongst teenagers and specifically young women, increase in suicide rates. I think we can draw a lot of, um, correlation, although I don't know that causation has yet been proven, to the rise of social media platforms and the power that they wield in society. And so I had a, this experience where basically I worked as a consultant to a music festival that was an epic failure and wasn't even that big. But the only reason that it was perceived to be as big as people thought it was, was because of its incredible use of social media. And after the documentary came out on this festival fire, I decided that I wanted to dive deeper on this particular subject. So I did 10 episodes on that and ultimately realized that while it is an interesting topic and one that needs to be highlighted, I felt like I was having the same conversations over and over again and bringing my own bias into those conversations from everything that I had learned previously. And there was so much more that I wanted to explore, you know, like um, social media addiction and technology is just a subsector of broader mental health issues, um, broader consciousness and spiritual awareness. I think we have uh, our mental health, our physical health, our emotional health, our spiritual health, and nowadays we have our digital health. And I like to explore all of those different subjects. Um, plus I'm a big economics nerd, so I like to talk about those things. I've been an entrepreneur twice. So I like to talk about the unique challenges that entrepreneurs face. So I guess in a nutshell, you know, I'm not sure what differentiates my show, except that it's it's me hosting it, and therefore listeners that like it probably enjoy my style of reflection and conversation. 
Um, and then people that wouldn't be interested in kind of the way that I, I speak or, or ask questions or learn wouldn't necessarily be interested. I'm figuring out whether or not that is, you know, a sustainable way to grow an audience or if there's other, you know, other kind of niches that I could focus on um, or, you know, other styles that I could play around with, like narrative style storytelling versus simple back and forth interviews. Yeah. Long, long answer. <laughs> I like long answers. That's the point. Uh, <laughs> um, that's an interesting thing because I think that, well, something that I'm thinking about as you're, as you're saying that is that there seems to be a uh, kind of cognitive contradiction, it, at least culturally, between this kind of uh, woke kind of culture of like you do yoga and meditation and type stuff versus uh, capitalism, economics, and this sort of selfishness that pervades American culture. And so how do you kind of connect those things. I'm kind of diving into the deeper questions first, but that's uh, <laughs> where we yeah, are. I mean, that's a great question. Um, really, I think you nailed it. And that's something that I struggle with and always have is integrating, um, you know, spirituality, consciousness, um, and the exploration of self into a framework that covers entrepreneurship, shareholder-based capitalism, and macroeconomic theory. Um, I like to think of my role in this world as a bridge between the head and the heart. So giving credence to the emotions that we feel as data versus over-rationalizing, overthinking, um, kind of succumbing to the cult of intellectualism where we completely ignore the information that our bodies, which have evolved over thousands and thousands of years and, you know, whose technology has evolved over hundreds of thousands or millions of years um, is, is potentially sharing with us at any given time. And so it's, it's an interesting bridge to create because, you know, for example, the yoga exploration is the science of self and it's an N equals one. So there have been a number of experiments that have come into place to try to prove yoga's impact, particularly meditation's impact on our physiological state, you know, what happens in our brain when we meditate, what, um, what lasting impact does it have on our emotional state, et cetera. Uh, but ultimately, each of us are, are engaged. Anyone that's on that path or chooses the path of self-discovery is engaged in an experiment, a lifelong experiment of N equals one. And oftentimes, the most interesting discoveries in that experiment are not replicable um, or are even, even worse or extremely, extremely difficult to put into words. How does a guru translate the experience of quote unquote enlightenment to one of his disciples? I'm certainly not saying that I'm a guru nor that I've experienced enlightenment because I haven't. Um, and I don't think, I, I think I've rarely experienced the state of true peace, even in meditation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really challenging thing. Although I think post COVID, um, we're seeing a renewed interest, uh, a profound shift in engagement around how we can apply, uh, how we can apply heart-based practices 
to the world of business and to economics in general. I think that's what regenerative economies are all about. That's what stakeholder capitalism is all about. Uh, so understanding the language and jargon of the finance world, uh, as I have, because I studied finance undergraduate at Wharton, worked at Morgan Stanley, I'm a recovering investment banker, um, positions me to be able to reframe that conversation around this heart-centered you know, path and not without its challenges. So yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great, and we'll, we'll definitely get into more of that anyways. Um, but I guess going, uh, since you mentioned it, uh, you did your your undergrad in uh, economics. And uh, so what made you interested in doing that? Yeah, I think, I think when I was 17 years old and I was choosing college, um, I was hyper competitive. I was an athlete. Um, I was competitive on the academic front and I really just wanted to win and winning as defined in high school for me was getting the best grades, doing the most activities, receiving accolades outside of my, outside of academia, playing sports and winning. Um, and then what I perceived at that time to be the, the grades of adulthood, uh, the external validator of achievement was money. And so for me, you know, when selecting between the schools that I went to, uh, that I applied to, I chose to apply early decision to Wharton predominantly because it was the hub of money thinking in the world. And I felt that it would put me on a path towards wealth. Um, and so that was really what, what drove my decision. And I think I remember, I can remember clearly, in fact, my, uh, my essay for Wharton was about becoming um, a self-made politician. So I always had this desire to impact public policy and to make changes to our society at large. But I had this kind of belief at that time that in order to do so, I would have to win what I consider to be. Can you curse on this podcast or no? Yeah, yeah. You can say whatever the like, fuck you want. Quote unquote, fuck you money. Sure. Right. Money being the equivalent of freedom. If I had my own money, I wouldn't, you know, and became a politician, I wouldn't be corrupted by special interest groups and lobbyists. And I'd be able to make decisions based on what I actually believe to be important change. Um, all of that is a lot of that thinking has since changed. And I've had to shed these kind of um, socializations, let's call them, or, or socialized ideas that I picked up over time in my youth. Um, the irony of the decision was, is that, uh, you know, in choosing to go to Wharton, I, I decided I had to cancel my Stanford application when I wasn't, uh, when I was accepted to Wharton early decision and probably would have made a ton more money if I was in Silicon Valley from 2008 to 2012. So, you know, I, I think that that also, um, highlights a fundamental flaw of chasing money for the sake of, of making money. Um, well, it does seem like you still had like the, the, the noble goal in a way of, yeah, being able to influence body, policy decisions and uh, political decisions so that you are not influenced. But in a way, is there a way of getting to the point of fuck you money without being corrupted yourself? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the key, right? Like, I the the def, the term "fuck you" money is is this kind of um, it was it was passed down to me by someone who I, I won't mention, but uh, he he had the best of intentions um, because you know, "fuck you" money is the concept of money uh, equals freedom, and if you have money, you're free. You're you're free. If you have enough yeah. money, you're free to live a certain life that you want to live. Um, you don't need to kowtow to others. Uh, you have this kind of independence and power uh, that, you know, that that is potentially valuable, although it's, it's a fallacy, right? Because money does not equal freedom. Money is in its way, in its own way, a prison. Um, it, it's its own trap. Most people that make a lot of money um, are comparing themselves to others who make a lot of money and are not are dissatisfied with how much they have versus their peers or can't stop playing the money game. So they're consistently striving for more and more and more and more. Um, it's like this Faustian bargain mm-hmm. that, that we make. And in a way, you know, those who chase money as, as a, um, as a placeholder for freedom, uh, are often disappointed yeah. And uh, so I guess going back to you a little bit more, uh, going more on the, the tech front, uh, was technology always a part of kind of what you are going for with these goals? Um, or did it kind of become apparent over time as you were approaching this stuff? And I guess I, that probably also goes with uh, explaining where you went from doing economics and then going into work and entrepreneurship and all that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think technology has always, uh, you know, played a role in my life. Um, you know, I've been an early adopter of certain technologies from a young age. I was always a gamer. I had, you know, N64, Xbox, really privileged and lucky to be able to have those things when I was younger. Um, had an iPhone, had a Blackbird when it was cool too. Um, <laughs> I used to, I used to, with my dad, kind of take apart computers and, and try to put them back together. I've always had this kind of really strong curiosity um, around new, what's new, um, that which is novel just attracts me. And so I, I think in that way, technology has always played a role, but I was never, you know, I, I was really good at math, but I never enjoyed sitting down and doing math. Um, and so I, I never even... I don't even think it ever had crossed my mind until I, an older age to become a programmer or to program uh, or become an engineer. And if I had like one quote unquote regret, you know, it would be that I didn't learn how to code because coding, you know, Naval Ravikant says that uh, computer literacy is the, is being able to code is like being literate in the future. It allows you to do so many things. So if there's any younger people listening here, I, I think, a foundational understanding of code um, and computer science is probably really important. But for me, technology is more just a way for me to to learn new things, a way for me to connect deeper. Um, and it's just fun. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not necessarily a, a, you know so integrated into the work that I do. Yeah. Um, so how did you get from this sort of winner mentality into uh yoga meditation and trying to kind of 
find something greater beyond what the world tells us is winning? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a combination of things over over time, and I would say that I ha- I certainly haven't shed that desire to win um, and that competitive nature. It's something that I you know that I struggle with, and something that I also question. Like, is this a part of me that I really need to embrace more because I've spent so much time over the last ten years kind of pushing it down, uh, potentially inadvertently, in this kind of desire to. Um, to be a yogi and a desire to be kind of more calm and even keeled and, and tranquil, uh, you know, the warrior, like, I think that's a common misconception of yoga is that uh, you have to, like, Ram Das refers to it as the, the, the phony holy. Um, mm-hmm. It's when you start down the spiritual path and you have these frameworks and ideas around, like, what it means to be a spiritual person. And so you start to do them um, just because you're trying to fit this identity of spirituality that, you know, that has been pushed on you potentially by an external party or like by media or whatever, you know, eat, pray, love or whatever that is. And I've certainly was susceptible to that, you know, and, and, and then I, I began to ignore certain um, emotions, desires, people call it spiritual bypass as well. It's like, you don't do the hard shadow work where you really look at the parts of yourself that make you uncomfortable. I think right now as a collective, we're doing a lot of shadow work around racism, um, you know, around capitalism, around this money consciousness that I was describing earlier. And it's important to at least evaluate it, you know, on the spiritual journey, we can push it down. So I wouldn't say that my competitive edge has disappeared as I've, as I've gone on my spiritual journey. It's just, I become more aware of it and how it affects my behaviors, how it can lead me towards reactivity. And sometimes it has a really important place, you know, when I needed to get a project done, when I need to support an entrepreneur, when I need to build something, um, that competitive edge is really valuable. Uh, I'll follow with like a couple of stories, if you don't mind. So, so one, one is the story of Arjuna. You know, Arjuna is the great hero of the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is the basically the, the Bible of yoga tradition. It's like the foundational text of yoga that explains the entire philosophy of yoga, which is really just a part of Hinduism. It's a part of the Mahabharata. Um, and, you know, Arjuna is this warrior. He's part of the warrior caste. His karma is to fight his car. He's a karma yogi. He's not going to be um, an ascetic sitting in a, in a, in a cave meditating and removing himself from society. He is a fighter. And so he goes onto the battlefield, this great battle to win back his kingdom from his evil cousins that have stolen it from him. Actually, I think they stole it from his father in a, in a dice game, but I don't exactly remember that part of the story. And he's, he's riding out on his chariot and he has Krishna. Krishna is kind of like the Jesus figure in Hindu mythology. He is the human manifestation of, um, of Brahman, of the, the kind of universal God. There are kind of sub-gods in Hinduism, but Brahman is that energy that flows through all of us and all things. And it's neither positive nor negative, good nor bad. Um, it's all things everywhere at all times. 
And so Krishna is like Brahman deciding to manifest itself in this human form. And so he is Arjuna's charioteer. And Arjuna is riding out with Krishna on the day of the great battle to win back his kingdom. And he looks over at his army and it's his brother side by side with him and his fellow warriors going to fight. And he knows that many of them are going to die. And he looks out across the battlefield and he sees on the other side, his cousins, whom are his blood, even though they've done wrong. And a lot of his friends, advisors, whose armies are beholden to the crown, which the cousins hold. And he, he realizes that many on that side are going to die and lose their lives in battle. And so in this great moment of shame and weakness and guilt leading into the great battle of his life, he falls to the floor and collapses in hysterics. And he says, I won't fight. I will not fight. I will not kill my brothers. I will not kill my cousins. I will not kill my friends. And Krishna lifts him up. And that thus begins the story of the Bhagavad Gita. But essentially it is that he must fight. It is, it is his dharma. It is his purpose to fight um, and to release the results of that fight to Brahman, to the all-powerful. Um, and so, you know, each of us have our own unique journey in this life. Um, and there is no one spiritual path. In India, you'll find a lot of karma yogis. It's the householder yogi. You know, you, you work towards releasing desires. You work towards not fixating on outcomes, but you still work. You know, so that's one story. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll pause before I share this, the second one, which is much shorter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, this is why you're kind of perfect for this podcast, because the uh, the connection between the spiritual and the 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 real in a way is is kind of all uh, one in the same with you. It's, uh, it's I appreciate you, you sharing. that. <laughs> so, yeah, go ahead with the second story. <laughs> well, so the second story is more, it's local to me. Um, there is a, a guru in New York City, a, a man named uh, Dharma Mitra, who comes from Brazil and he moved to New York to bring yoga there. Um, he was once uh, a bodybuilding champion in his hometown in Brazil. And he is just this incredible yogi um, from an asana standpoint. He does the most incredible things with his body. He's like almost 80 years old and can stand on his head without any hands. You know, there's this famous picture of him on a New York, um, what are those called? The covers that cover up the sewer. Uh, manhole. Um, cover. Manhole. Manhole cover, um, standing on his head with no mat, no hands, just upside down <laughs> pencil. Awesome. I was going to Dharma's classes for a little bit, um, a few months, uh, when I was like 23, 24, um, maybe even like 25, 26. And I started doing these practices, these breathwork pranayama practices that he was teaching. And, you know, they made me feel really good. Like I would do them every day in the morning and I would go out with like this energy and I'd walk through the city streets and I'd feel like excited and powerful and I'd feel up like and strong. And then I just remember feeling in my body or in my mind, this kind of rejection of that feeling, which came to me as, you're, you're getting an ego about this. Like you're, mm. you're feeling into the superpowers that you think this, this practice is giving you. 
and acting like you're better than. And so I brought this kind of concern to Dharma and Dharma basically told me in very few words, because he doesn't have, he doesn't use a lot of words to get his message across. He just basically said a little bit of ego is a good thing, hmm. you know, and, and my other te- one of my other teachers, Jared McCann, um, often said that you needed to crystallize your ego before you could move past it. So part of the spiritual bypass is like not accepting that we have, um, that we can shine, not accepting that, you know, we can be powerful, that we can be strong, that we can make an impact on an individual level. We are both extremely insignificant in the grand, grand scheme of space and time hurling around on this blue ball around a burning ball of fire. Um, we're tiny, 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 tiny specks in the universe. And yet in our own world, we are the uh, programmer and the program. We are the director and the lead actor. You know, it's, we are exceptionally important. And so balancing those two, I think, is, is a life's work. But, I, you know, it's important to, for those on the spiritual path to kind of recognize the desire for spiritual bypass uh, without doing the hard work as another manifestation of ego. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know transition away from that because that's really good. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so to not even try to transition, uh, what the heck is blockchain blockchain? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, so how do I describe it? So blockchain is basically a database, um, for all intents and purposes. It is a database that, um, you can't change after a certain period of time. And so you can think of each block in this database as a uh, list of data and information. And every block that gets created gets added to the database and then cryptographically sealed, meaning it's sealed with a, um, a math problem that needs to be in, in the case of proof of work. So it gets complicated because there's permission blockchains, there's permissionless <laughs> blockchains, there's proof of work, there's proof of stake. There's all these different um, sure. ways to, to validate blocks, but essentially there's some kind of computer programming running whose job is to put together a bunch, a list of transactions in a row um, based on the time that they occurred and then pull them into this block, and then at the same time, try to solve this incredibly difficult math problem that um, is easy to prove was solved, but not easy to reverse engineer. And so once the math problem is solved, the transactions are ordered, a new block is created in the blockchain. This new information is added to that database. In the case of the Bitcoin blockchain, it is a public blockchain, all of the information is publicly available. It is a permissionless blockchain, meaning that anyone that wants to participate in the network and mine quote unquote blocks, aka order these transactions and solve math problems can do so. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I think that's <laughs> the description. Yeah. In yeah. Nutshell. Uh, why, why is that important? But then also why aren't we using this for everything already? Come on. 
Yeah, well, it's incredibly, it's incredibly inefficient. Um, mm. You don't need, you know, like for every single bit that flies around the internet um, to to put that on a, on a blockchain would be costly in terms of time, energy, um, money. It's it, it's not necessary um, for the transfer of value. Um, it is it is necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, and that's why also people you know there's all these arguments about like our permission blockchains, which private permission blockchains are basically a consortium of corporate entities, individuals that have permission to participate in the block creation. Um, and the data is all private. People that are better suited to explain technology than I am would say that why not just use a private database? It, it works just mm. fine. Um, blog, I guess blockchain is also, um, or Web3 technology, kind of this technology around, I guess, immutability. So, un, you know, you can't change the information once it comes. Um, open permissionless networks. Again, mm-hmm. the permissionless nature of Bitcoin is super interesting. Uh, and they're also really interesting because they create this opportunity to distribute value to a broad um, group of participants in the network rather than, you know, in the case of, say, Facebook and Google and large tech companies that are sucking up the vast majority of the value that's created um, through the products and services that they've, that they've made. Uh, participants in a network, in a blockchain network, can all generate value, or at least that's the promise. Whether or not that actually happens in practice is still TBD. Yeah. Um, what do you think the future of that entails or how could we be using it? How do you think we would likely be using it? Um, and would it even really benefit us to do so? <laughs> well, I think, I think of Bitcoin as, you know, like when I think of crypto or blockchain, I want to separate um, sure. Bitcoin into its own category. Mm. You know, Bitcoin is um, a non-sovereign digital hard cap supply um, currency. It's yeah. it is an opportunity to it creates an opportunity to participate in a financial system that is not entirely designed and guided by um, governments. So you know one of the challenges of today's macroeconomic landscape is that we have fiat currencies. Fiat currencies are essentially currencies that are backed by a government's ability to create its own money and to tax its citizens to repay um, those liabilities. What happens, it seems, when you have a central bank who has the authority over money is that um, the control of that money gets politicized and you know you see this in certain countries getting sanctioned and removed from the financial um, plumbing of the world which is run by the United States 
Um, and if you know this financial plumbing is is corrupted by bad policymakers, um, that's that's a real issue. In kind of the a better place to explain it might be Venezuela, where they consistently default on their debts or try to inflate away their debts so that um, you know their currency is essentially worthless. That like people use it for fires. Um, this doesn't happen in Bitcoin because you know that there are only ever going to be 21 million uh, Bitcoin ever created. That's inherently deflationary. So the price of Bitcoin should appreciate over time as there's more demand for Bitcoin um, because it has limited supply. And, um, and also, I hope, one of my hopes and beliefs is that it will lead to less wealth inequality um, across the globe because, you know, the, the flow of new money from a central bank to banks and then to bank customers oftentimes happens in a way that is inequitable. And so existing players that have power, that hold assets, when a central bank prints money, their assets go up in value, they get richer. Those of us that are saving our wage earners um, don't benefit as much. So it's kind of this like constant battle between capital and labor or the bourgeois and the proletariat, um, as Marx would just would have described it. Um, and so Bitcoin is, you know, it, it was created in 2008 by a pseudonymous individual named Satoshi Nakamoto. Nobody knows who he or her really is. Could have been a group of people. And the first block that was mined had in it, there's like this random string of data that you can put in any Bitcoin block. And it had in it a, a headline from the Financial Times about the 2008 financial crisis. As a reminder of why it was created, it emerged from the financial crisis. And, you know, in addition, we live in a world governed by bits now. Software yeah. is eaten the world. And so, you know, we need a currency that matches that. Um, Bitcoin solves a couple of problem, traditional problems of digital currency. It's peer-to-peer, meaning you don't need a central third party to kind of validate the trust in the network. If I don't know you and you don't know me, I can send you money in exchange for, um, for you know, a service uh, and know that that money is going to get there uh, without being interrupted. And so, you know, that's, that's extremely valuable as well. As far as the other Web3 technologies, I think, um, you know, when you see companies like Medium deplatforming individuals, for their opinions, um, you want, you know, you see countries like China um, censoring information, you know, you want what's called like an unstoppable web. So you want pages that governments can't take down. Um, you want information to flow freely. Uh, if you want to be, if you want individuals to be compensated for their data, um, there should be privacy features built in. And that data should be owned by the individual and then permissioned to be used by large corporations like Facebook, Amazon, Google in exchange for value to the end user. And all that can be facilitated by blockchain technology. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. I mean, I've been working in that space, you know, for, for almost for three years now, basically. And, you know, as you can tell, I'm probably not even qualified to explain it in simple terms, which means I haven't fully wrapped my head around it yet. <laughs> so, you know, no worries if it's, if it sounds super complicated, I'm probably not doing the best job of explaining it. 
No, I mean, that's, it's a cool, super cool thing. And I think for, for, I, I like asking simple questions because it really actually gets to a, a greater idea of what it is. And so that, uh, long-winded answers like that can help, uh, show people that like, Hey, there's a lot to this thing and whatever that might mean. So yeah, there's a lot to learn. And if you're into podcasts, my friend Peter McCormick created the what Bitcoin did podcast, which is like the number one podcast on Bitcoin. It's incredible. You learn, you'll learn a ton. He gets the best guests. Um, if you're interested in more of the Web3 stuff, my friend Jason Choi um, created uh, Block Crunch. Um, Tom Shaughnessy has uh, Chain Reaction, and David Nage has Base Layer, and they go more into kind of like the Web Web3. It's called kind of like Ethereum, and Ethereum is another cryptocurrency that is the Ethereum is another crypto network blockchain network that is meant to be the foundational layer for quote unquote Web3 which is this, what the internet was promised to be. It was kind of like open, distributed network of individual participants with free-flowing information peer-to-peer. Whereas the internet web two um, that we kind of currently use is dominated by a dozen or so large companies. Yeah. Um, even though we like haven't really talked about the the entrepreneurship stuff i am trying to sort of like go into the second half of the interview but it is like uh so what advice do you have for other entrepreneurs other uh, people that are interested in the things that you do and want to get started in that yeah i think um i think if you have you know one like i'm extremely privileged in that i didn't have student debt um coming out of college you know there are hundreds of thousands, I think maybe even millions of students that are coming out of college in debt, you know, be, be thoughtful about your economic situation as you make decisions. Like I was in investment banking and then I jumped ship to start my first company, but I had safety nets and that made it much easier for me. Like I could pretend that I was being super brave, but it made it much easier for me to start my first company knowing that I wouldn't be starving if it failed. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, it did fail and I lost a lot of money and, you know, I had egg on my face and I tried my best to get back up and I started a second company. Um, and that, you know, that when 90s Fest was sold in the end of 2017, it wasn't exactly the outcome that I had hoped for, but, you know, at least it was an exit. Um, for, so for young entrepreneur, young individuals that want to become entrepreneurs, I, I recommend, you know, first, um, if you if financials finances are an issue, join a well-funded startup. You know, look at kind of post-series B companies um, are usually at that stage of development where they have product market fit, um, they have a repeat scalable model, they have a founding team in place that's exceptional, and they're backed with capital that gives them leverage. And so if you join kind of series B to series E stage startup, you'll have an opportunity to watch a company rapidly grow in terms of number of employees, in terms of revenue, in terms of number of customers, et cetera. And you'll probably learn a ton about scaling from one to 10, you know, and that in of itself, that education, working with those exceptional people, building them in in your network, really, really, really valuable um, work. And you're getting paid to do it, so you can pay off your you know, student loans. If you don't have student loans and you want to be an entrepreneur um, and you're in a financial position to take that risk, uh, you know, start a company, right? Like 
there's no better education about entrepreneurship than becoming an entrepreneur. Many people will, will argue, you know, entrepreneurs make the best VCs or VCs can become entrepreneurs, venture capitalists. Uh, I'm not so sure. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But you, you learn by doing so much more. It's like trial by fire. So go, you know, go do it. Find, pick an idea, um, research it, and start to work on it. And that's not to say that you have to quit your job. Like I also, another mistake that I made when I was younger was I got so gung-ho about the first business that I wanted to start that I quit my job at Morgan Stanley and I turned down a private equity offer in San Francisco. And frankly, like I worked on it for a year and a half, but I could have stretched that time to two years, maybe um, working nights and weekends and probably learned more at my other jobs, um, saved up more money and realized potentially that the company wasn't viable without quitting. So like recognize that you have a lot of time and you can work on things on nights and weekends in order to prove out the ideas that you have. Yeah. Um, I've done this a couple times before and there's enough information, enough conversation that we're having with this that uh, I kind of would just want to have the first half of the interview be the first podcast. And so I'm just going to continue asking questions about you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so what what was your first business and how how do you kind of in hindsight see the the failures that you made and then kind of allowed you to propel yourself to your second business with 90s Fest and all that? Yeah, so my first business um, was called Tinco. And Tinco was short for the Inventory Corporation. And the idea behind Tinco was inspired um, by the financial crisis. So, you know, I was at Orton during the greatest pre COVID, the greatest um, financial disaster the world had seen since the Great Depression. And none of my professors um, had predicted it, and fewer professors. And, and none of my professors or few professors offered an explanation as to what happened and why. I did an independent study on financial crises my senior year, and I was drawn to this idea that um, the reaction to, um, to the financial crisis by Fed, uh, central banks across the world, which was to print more money, was called quantitative easing, Basically, they print more money. They actually put at, um, new types of assets on the bal- on their balance sheets. So they purchase assets that they previously hadn't. Um, in the case of the Fed, they were purchasing mortgage-backed securities and collateralized debt obligations. And one potential outcome of more money printing is inflation, where the v- purchasing power of every dollar goes down. So today... You know, $3.50 might get me a cup of coffee. If there's inflation, five, 10 years from now, that cup of coffee might cost me $8. Um, And that's really, that's showing up in what's called the consumer price index. Yeah. Consumer inflation. So I was of the opinion and my partners of the opinion that because we had unprecedented trillions of dollars worth of monetary easing across the planet, that there would be a reckoning in terms of all of this new money flowing into the system, um, flooding the system, 
that the money would be worth less and there would be an inflationary outcome. So my partner and I wanted to create a new financial security that would protect investors against inflation. Um, and we felt the best asset to own if there was inflation was actually the inventories and receivables of the consumer goods that most people buy, toilet paper, yeah. um, you know, canned foods, et cetera. Yeah. And so that's why we call it the inventory corporation. We created this asset class and nobody wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, one lesson was uh, product, oftentimes founders um, want to create want to really focus on product. They think that they've created something exceptional and they don't spend the time or the energy actually discovering who their customer is for that product and validating that there's real customer demand for that product. Yeah. And I think we spent a lot of time ideating around the structure of this financial security. We did some research and believed that there was a demand for real assets from large pools of capital and investors. And we considered ourselves in the real asset bucket, but you know, they didn't necessarily want exactly what we were selling. And so um, it, we were facing an uphill battle from the beginning. So that's lesson sure. number one. Um, lesson number two is that uh, inflation actually didn't happen in the consumer price index. It happened in um, other assets like equities. We've had a 10-year bull run in the stock market. Um, we've seen even just in the last six months, March 12th, the price of the market dropped 20, 30% in a panic about COVID. The Federal Reserve Bank committed to multiple trillions of dollars. In addition, the Treasury of the United States committed multiple trillions of dollars of fiscal stimulus, and that bounced the stock market right back up. We're now almost exactly back where we were in March. Um, and that's the power of monetary easing to manipulate the price of assets. Um, so that was the other kind of mistake that we made. A lot of people lost on that bet. Inflation never happened. Um, and so, you know, that was, that was a challenge. Um, the other, you know, the other lesson was be, are you the right person and team for this, for building this company? There's always hurdles to starting a business, um, but you know you don't want to put yourself in an industry in a position where where you have all of the risk of starting a business and then you have the additional risk of not being the right team to do it. Uh, I, I was 23, my partner was 24. You know we were set, we were not selling a high return product by two Wharton geniuses that was going to get you 200% returns on your investment, which you know, risk and reward are often kind of this, there's often viewed this efficient market theory trade-off between you take more risk, you get more reward. Um, we were actually selling safety. So for a 23-year-old and a 24-year-old to be selling a product that performed really well in one specific environment, a hyperinflationary <laughs> environment, um, but otherwise paid like 2 3% plus CPI, and had a lot of risk. It had credit risk. It had founder risk, business, our, our risk. You know, we were perceived to be much riskier as founders than the product that we were creating kind mm -hmm. of accounted for. And so when, you know, as 23-year-olds with zero track record selling an entirely <laughs> new financial product that's selling safety 
to institutional investors that need to see five to 10 years of track record on a new investment product. We just weren't, we weren't qualified to be the ones mm. creating this. Someone at Morgan Stanley could have created this. You know, they would have had the financial backing of that institution. There might've been some demand for it um, at that time because investors did want to hedge against inflation, but it wasn't going to come from, from an upstart company. Sure. Um, and then kind of in a entirely different thing with 90s Fest, how, how do you even jump into that? <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because it looks so random. Um, right. But it, it wasn't at that time. It's like everything's been kind of emergent. I, uh, you know, I was working on a startup. I was trying to pay the bills, um, wasn't pulling in any income, and I had been an investment banker for two years. So what are investment banking analysts good at? They're really good at financial modeling. They're really good at putting together offering materials for raising capital, like investor presentations and confidential information memorandums. <laughs> They're really good at process. So um, identifying investors, managing outreach, making sure that all of the boxes are checked, putting together data rooms. It's really just a process job with some Excel and PowerPoint skills <laughs> uh, and understanding financial modeling. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I have this unique skill set. Why don't I use that to make money? So I started helping startup companies whose founders were personally in my network with presentations, with financial models, with investor outreach and due diligence, and really um, creating my own kind of quasi like advisory firm um, for companies that couldn't afford a proper investment bank because they weren't at that stage but could afford to pay me, you know, $5,000 a month or $2,000 a month or whatever it was at that time to do this really important work and help them raise money. And one company that I worked with was called uh, Prime Social Group, started by a good friend of mine since elementary school. His name's Adam Lynn. Mm. They were an events promotion business in the Midwest. They, at the time, were doing around 40 or 50 shows a year, mostly kind of club shows, a couple of arena shows with big acts. They did Nas, um, Steve Aoki, uh, Skrillex, I forget who else at that time, a couple, some other big hip hop names, Kid Cudi. Um, mm. And, you know, I helped them basically put together a financial model. There was a lot of interest in that space at the time. Um, Live Nation, who's now the largest, you know, independent venue owner in the world, was buying up a lot of individual promotion companies. Mm -hmm. AEG, who own um, Coachella through Golden Voice, were buying a bunch of festivals. Governor's Ball had just been acquired out of New York by Live Nation. This company, SFX, went public for like a billion dollars. So PSG was in the right place, right time. We went out, raised capital. We had success. Um, I was just like, wow, this is so much more fun than finance. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I was like, wow, this is just, I, I'm super interested and curious about macroeconomics and whatnot. But finance is really the business of money. Mm -hmm. And business in general, any business you do, you're making money. So finance is an important language to understand and skill set to have. But I just felt like the outcome of seeing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people celebrating together, coming together, experiencing excitement and fun and joy, that being my work felt really aligned. And so after working on PSG, I became a director on their board. I continued to work with the company. And when Tinco failed... I came up with the idea for 90s Fest through the learnings that I had from working with Prime Social Group. And I learned about kind of how you can build a proper economic model for a music festival business 
which is an extremely challenging business. Um, and I, I thought to myself, I have, I have the structure and also I have an idea on what community I would want to bring together. And it was a community of people that wanted to go back in time to their younger days um, to relive the 90s because a lot of 90s culture and fashion and whatnot was starting to reemerge around this time in 2015. Yeah. And so it was just a purely like um, coincidental, I guess, or emergent that I ended up starting 90s Fest. It was opportunistic, maybe, maybe too opportunistic. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a really fun experience. You know, we did our first event in 2015. We actually had support from the team at Governor's Ball. Um, They convinced us to do a smaller event for starters. We wanted to do something absolutely huge. Mm. Um, And they convinced us to do a smaller event. We had a lot of success. We ended up doing five events total. Um, We built one of the largest social media followings of any music festival in the world at that time. Uh, It was was a lot of fun. We partnered with Nickelodeon. We partnered with SiriusXM. We had a deal with Eventbrite on the ticketing side. We had sponsorships from Steve Madden and... Uh, scrunchie and Hasbro through Furby. So it was cool. You know, I remember the first day we launched, we were on Comedy Central. Um, mm. They were making fun of us on Comedy Central. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> we made it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of seemingly non sequitur, but not really. Uh, who's your favorite band? <laughs> oh, my favorite band. Um, man. Well, my favorite band from the 90s is Kevin Crows although they wouldn't consider themselves a 90s band, so that would be offensive to them. Trust <laughs> me, I know we tried to book them. Um, they're awesome. At that time, I also loved Blink-182. Um, I was big into hip-hop, Jay-Z, Kanye, uh, Nas. I guess that's not really an answer, but I, I have a really <laughs> eclectic, eclectic taste in music, so I'm not like diehard following you know, one band and everything that they release and following them around the world. Sure, sure. Um, and then I would be a little remiss if I didn't ask you about Firefest at least a little bit. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Totally. And thanks for waiting this long. Um, you know, <laughs> Fire Festival was, was like, uh, was just like 90s Fest. It was emerging because I was working on 90s Fest, was trying to sell the company. A friend of mine was looking at investing into Fire Festival. He called me. He knew I was looking for something. He said, hey, like you've got experience producing music festivals. Um, these guys are building a really cool app. They're releasing a music festival uh, in a couple of months to launch the app. They have some huge names signed up. Their marketing campaign was a huge success. Would you want to come on and try to help them with logistics? And so, you know, at that time, I was really excited to work on potentially a huge project. 90s Fest was not, not turning out the way that I had hoped. We had some serious competition come in, and so... That was stressing me. I had some founder is- co-founder issues that were really bothering me. And I was just excited to work on something different. So I flew down to the Bahamas. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, I met Billy. I met Ja Rule. I thought, you know, this is really cool if it's successful. And I, I got to work, started there a month before the festival. And the whole thing obviously, you know, blew up. It was going to be messy from the start. I knew it was messy. Um, so maybe that clouded my judgment if it had been presented to me as something that wasn't messy that weren't messy, I, I might have been like, all right, well, this is too too hairy for me. I can't do this. But because I knew I was going to try to fix a mess, it was kind of like, all right, let's go roll up our sleeves and see what we can do here. But of course, it, you know, it wasn't enough. Right. Well, I think it's, it's 
it's kind of easy for for people to kind of outside looking in be like oh how could you not see that this is a a scam or whatever but like i i do think that as as someone who has been uh scanned by an insurance company before uh as i tried to get a job in an insurance company and it itself kind of was a scam but no way. The, like it's 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 a it's it's really hard more about to, that <laughs> um well it's it's more that like they had very deliberate communication that tried to kind of misdirect the idea that like you're not getting paid until blank and so that's more of the uh and so the 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 idea that I feel that's like a lot often, of people can that's often a tool of of the con artist is to hang a carrot over your head until yeah you know and get you to work for free yeah and and so the um the idea that like I'm sure a lot of people can sort of look outside looking in at what happened with Firefest and be like oh how could you not see it but it's like on face value it is kind of this like it seemed like it could work and so the how, how do you kind of um show the the way that you kind of learn to in in one way look for it but in another way kind of not fall for it and then kind of learning from these mistakes yeah i mean i think i think it's just really important you know when you look back at it i think a lot of people still believe that it was just an outright scam Mm. Um, you know, there was, there were 40 people working on the event. There was $19 million spent. The acts were really booked. You know, there was building happening. The stage sound and lights were built completely by a really hardworking team. Music was played on the first night. There were obviously a lot of logistical issues and the predominant issue besides the outright financial fraud of the founder was (laughs) that the marketing, um, was done before the feasibility study on what could be done, right? And so they marketed this dream without a lot of time to actually deliver on it or a real knowledge of what, um, of whether or not they could have delivered on that dream. And so by the time I joined, it wasn't about, it wasn't about creating the dream that was marketed. It was about just getting anything up and running. And, um, you know, they, I think from that point and even before I joined, there should have been more communication with the guests, engaging them as stakeholders to say, everything's changed. You know, we wanted to deliver this exceptional experience. We don't think we'll be able to do it in time. Let's talk about next year. Let's talk about refunds. Let's talk about whatever. But I think they they felt they were too deep in the hole. They wanted to make something work. They thought if people got there, you know, it would, they would have fun. Um, so it wasn't like it was this, you know, scam where money was taken and nothing was, and like the founder was running away with everyone's money. Sure. Sure. Um, which is, I think is important to understand. Um, but as far as like, you know, looking for signals in the future, it's, uh, it's really just like, is there evidence to support claims you know, is yeah. the environment one that encourages communication and questions, or is it one that tries to suppress questions through fear? You know, there was the threat of lawsuit against certain employees if they spoke out uh, to the press or anyone outside of the organization. Um, you know, be aware of of 
big promises. Uh, if the salary offer <laughs> is is higher than you would expect, but they're paying it all on the back end, that's probably a red flag. Um, yeah, those are a couple of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so then moving forward, um, since that is kind of unfortunately one of the like big things that people know your name from now, like how do you kind of move forward from like, Hey, this is a thing, but at least you were, you had the integrity to be able to go and, and kind of stand up for what you knew should be done. And so how do you kind of move forward and, uh, kind of how we talked about the things that you learned from your first business and then kind of moving on. I feel like there's a sense in American culture that failure isn't an option. Um, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's kind of like, I, I think internally I've distanced myself from it. It's not, it doesn't feel like my failure. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, it feels like, something that I did my best at and solved a lot of really hard problems alongside some really incredible people, but ultimately the whole thing didn't come together. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, it is important to understand like failure does not make you a failure, right? There's like this, there's a difference between events and identity. Mm -hmm. And so like, I, I think there's like this famous quote that said something around, something about um, a successful person is just someone who uh, has failed, you know, a bunch and then tries again or something like that. You know, we're like the the famous Edison, you know, Edison kind of tried making the light bulb 999 times before he succeeded. Um, Failure is just a step on the journey towards quote unquote success um, and I think, I think that's all important to understand and to recognize, you know, like I was part of one of the biggest public failures in recent memory and it's been nothing but positive for me. Um, yeah. most, most, a lot of people reach out to me and they tell me they're working for a Billy, you know? And so there's a lot of this kind of corruption and, and, uh, mistreatment of employees happening. Uh, under the radar and people don't feel, you know, confident and comfortable speaking out. And so if I can give a voice to those individuals, then it will have them worth it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, finally switching gears and there's no good way to transition away from it or from anything else. So, uh, what is the role of spirituality or religion in your life? Yeah. So, um, I mean, spirituality and religion play a huge role in my life. Um, I just think, I I think it's mostly about practice versus philosophy, you know, trying to really integrate the values of a path, the path of yoga, the, the yamas and the niyamas, which are kind of like the, the 10 commandments of yoga, but not really more, they're not so much prescriptions as they are invitations um, towards certain behavior. So like satcha, which is truthfulness, I think is really important and something that no one is perfect at. Um, 
compassion or ahimsa is another. And it's not just about understanding these at an intellectual level. It's about trying to put them in practice. And oftentimes they feel conflicting, right? For example, you know, your girlfriend's standing in front of the mirror. She asks her if she looks good in that dress. Um, how do you integrate kind of, and you don't think so. How do you integrate satya, truthfulness, and compassion into a response? Um, do you lie? Because then you're breaking satya. But you're, being, you're lying because you are compassionate towards that person. Do you tell the truth? And if so, how do you tell the truth in a way that actually holds space for, for their feelings? Um, this is just like a really tiny example, but it's one that I think is important to understand. And then trusting that it's all a process. Um, you know, be, spirituality is a process. It's, it's a word that's often kind of co-opted to mean, you know, oh, a spiritual person has a man bun and, you know, can <laughs> fold his body in a certain way and meditates for 20 minutes per day in the morning and night. And, you know, I, I think there's plenty of spiritual people out there that just live their own unique path. So eventually, I think finding, finding that, that own path for yourself is a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, what is your definition of God? My definition of God is evolving. It evolves all the time. Um, you know, I, I consider God to be this universal energy that flows through all things, everywhere, at all times, that is in that we are of and we are in at the same time and is in us. Um, each one of us is God. Each one of us sees God in the other. And yet we are a part of it, but not it. Um, <clears throat> it's the, it's as Alan Watts says, it's the witch for which there is no witcher. Uh, so words are really, it's, words are really challenging to describe it. But when you kind of sit still, you know it's there, you feel it in a breeze, in a ray of sun on the skin, in your heart. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's why I'm a fan of yours, Mark. Uh, <laughs> um, is free will an illusion? Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> No, I, I don't think that free will is an illusion. Um, <laughs> uh, trying to elaborate on that. I mean, is there a grand design, maybe? Um, we... We have the, we have the capacity to choose. Um, we have control over our own choices. We have, now that there's some science around that, that might actually conflict that statement, um, but we won't go into it. <laughs> we have, uh, you know, there's only so much within our, our realm of control. That's mostly in our inner world, how we perceive the world, how we react, how we respond, um, and so part of that is our choices. We're able to, you know, to make a decision. 
And whether or not we were always going to make that decision because it was predestined or not, we're still there making it. Yeah. I don't know. Complicated, yeah. tough question. <laughs> yeah. And the point is never to get an answer. The point is to talk about it. And that's, yeah. <laughs> Damn, I thought I got an A on that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's, there's no right answer. And that's, that's sort of the point. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and then how do you determine what good behavior is? I think it's up to each one of us to kind of determine that for ourselves. Um, I don't know if there's a moral absolute. It's like, uh, that's really, that's really tough, you know, because then you start to get into, you know, there's the, the question of like, is murder bad? Like if you say there's no moral absolute, then that means that murder is not, you know, good or bad. And so I remember in a legal studies I cla- a class I took in college, my professor ran this experiment where it was basically like, you land on an island. Um, it's, it's, on an, it's an inhabited island, but it's not been discovered um, for you know, thousands of years. And the culture on that island has evolved to believe that in the afterlife, um, you take with you the body that you die with. And so once an individual reaches a certain age, it's the responsibility of the child to murder the parent so that the parent can keep its body preserved for the next life. You know, you get into kind of complicated territory if you try to um, tell, you know, if you try to import your culture and say, no, all killing is wrong. Um, You should not kill your parent. And then they say, well, my parent is going to the afterlife. If I let them live, they're going to be old forever in that lifetime and their bodies are going to be frail and it's not going to be an enjoyable experience for them. Who are you to say like, well, there is no afterlife or that's not what the afterlife looks like. (laughs) You know, so it gets, it gets really complicated. Um, And so there's that like age old saying, nothing's good or bad, less thinking makes it so. Hmm. And we all, we all have our subjective frame through which we view the world. Um, and that's kind of, that's a really uncomfortable view for me to sit with because I like to believe that there is a universal truth Mm -hmm. that man has access to certain universal truths. Um, but yeah, how do you know if you know that one truth, you know, Mm -hmm. versus something else? (laughs) I guess that's what faith is. Sure. Sure. And then the, the Socrates, the only thing that I know is that I know nothing. Um, (laughs) how do we reduce the division? Um, listening. Yeah. (laughs) Um, can you elaborate or should we go on the next one? (laughs) Yeah, no, I, (laughs) I'm, I'm happy to elaborate. I just, um, I just think that there's too much right now. There's just so much polarization. Um, It's there's safety in the extremes. You know, you get to join the club on either side in any argument. And there is no yin without the yang. There is no bad without the good, vice versa. And so we almost like through polarization, create that which we are so polarized against. 
And I kind of see it as, you know, if you listen to the other side, if you can find some, you listen, you can understand where they're coming from and hopefully find some kind of common ground. But if we're just all shouting at each other, canceling each other, um, you know, there's, there's no room for proper reflection and improvement. You have to listen first. Yeah. You said something very important, important enough that I want to say it again when we or like there, when we polarize, we, there's so much polarization that we polarize the things that we are polarized against. I think that was really important. So I, I wanted to say it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> uh, what are you optimistic about for our future? Um, the future of humanity. I, I'm, I, I, I think I'm, I'm definitely an optimist. Um, I think that we will, we will survive. You know, there might be some ugliness that happens in the meantime. Um, there might be some war, there might be some political upheaval, um, some economic challenges, but at the end of the day, we've been through a lot of those things already. And here we are. Um, I'm optimistic that the more shadow gets revealed uh, and evaluated at a personal, interpersonal, and societal level, the more growth there can be. So we can evolve as a species to a place beyond uh, where we currently are. You know, we, we currently live in this time of, of incredible abundance for most people living on, the, not most, but for many people living on this planet that was only accessible to kings. You know, say what you will about China or the Chinese Communist Party, but hundreds of millions of people have come out of poverty in that country over the last you know, 40 years or so, um, 30-ish years since Geiger Kaifeng, since the opening of the reform of China. You know, that's something to celebrate. Um, and I think we'll continue to see po- people, impoverished individuals kind of rising up um, to new levels. I think I think we're going to have to really evaluate our relationship to growth, our relationship to money, um, and our relationship to each other for there to be a better future. And I often hear spiritual leaders talking about kind of abundance frameworks versus scarcity frameworks. I think that's a good framing. You know, like there is enough. Um, we all have enough. We are enough. So let's lean into that rather than I win, you lose type mm-hmm. games. Yeah. Do you believe humans are evil by nature? No. <laughs> I think humans are, I think we're all born, we're all born good. Um, I think we're all so, and I think we're all inherently good. Like you would never look at a quote unquote evil person and talk to that person, that person would be like, yeah, I'm evil. You know, oftentimes, <laughs> oftentimes the person thinks that they're in the right. And so, you know, what socialization, what environment, what factors led up to that person acting in a way that was hurtful to others? Um, I mean, evil exists. I think evil exists within all of us, just as good exists within all of us. We all have the capacity to do evil. We all have the capacity to do harm um 
it's kind of the full spectrum of, of what it means to be human. But I don't think we are born predominantly evil. Yeah. What makes you content? Ah. <laughs> A nice workout. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I just feel like if we all exercise more, like just go out and exercise. When I go out and exercise, when I actually do it and I come back, I'm just like, it feels like I have to do less. You know, there's less of that kind of that dull anxiety that can creep in of like generalized, like, what do I, what, what do I do now? Cause there's so much choice around us, but sometimes it's just as simple as like releasing that energy, you know, through and through exercise. It's great. Yeah. No, it's really good. Uh, to quote a question that Wayne Coyne likes asking people, uh, when will you be satisfied? Oh man, I hope in this lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Two more on this front. Uh, What advice do you have for people in general? I think most people's internal internal dialogue or internal monologue defaults towards negative, um, defaults towards the critic. So... You know, just just listen to your voice, internal voice, and ask yourself if that's the way that you would talk to your best friend or someone that you love. And if it's not, um, that's important to recognize. And then, you know, try to be a little more kind to yourself. We're all doing the best that we can. Yeah, definitely. And lastly, potentially the most important, cake or pie? Ooh. (laughs) Oh, man. Pie. It hurts me to say it. I love cake. <laughs> I'm such a sweets guy. I mean, I'll, I'll eat all of them. Yeah. And then, so corollary to that, what is best pie? Oh, uh, best pie. It really just depends on my mood. That's the thing. I love the buffet of life, like all these things. <laughs> but um, yeah, just like a warm apple pie. So good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So um, <laughs> like banana cream, key lime, the fruit fruit tart, <laughs> pecan. Oh, I love them all. I, I honestly don't think I don't think there's a dessert I've ever tasted that I didn't like. Yeah, raisins I, I, do tend to ruin most things, in my opinion, but it can be I, done well. I like raisins. I like raisins. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for doing this with me uh that's it's been really great to have all your wisdom and all of the other the variety of things that you spoke on and we both spoke on so i mean it's it's been an honor so plug your stuff i you know plugging my stuff the look up podcast.com um you can check out my show you can subscribe to my newsletter uh it's look up on substack uh, I don't think it's connected to the website yet, but it will be soon. Um, episodes are available on iTunes. Look up the Look Up podcast with Mark Weinstein. Um, available on Spotify, anywhere that, that podcasts are available. And then 
The company that's singing to me these days is called Steward, S-T-E-W-A-R-D. Um, Steward is a platform to uh, promote regenerative agriculture by helping finance and service small, sustainable farmers across the world. Uh, and so you can go on the website today um, and check out the opportunities there. It gives individual investors the opportunity to invest directly into the land. Um, and regenerative farmers actually rebuild the soil. And soil is one of the best um, technologies to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. So they're a net carbon sink versus most agriculture, which is um, polluting a lot of carbon into the air. So Heck yeah. check out Seward uh, and learn more about regenerative ag. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I have an album coming out on August 8th. It is called Bloom. It is ambient. It is background music. It'll be streaming everywhere. But if you pay $10 on Bandcamp, you get a bonus track and some other bonus content that makes it worth your money. The weeks leading up to August 8th, bit depth will be daily, and I will be breaking down every single track from Bloom. So stay tuned for that. I also make music with PowerCycle. We are an experimental electronic trio. We have an album that is out streaming everywhere. It is called Too Many Damn Cables. It is completely improvised. We will also be having another EP out this year, as well as another complete album. They are both completely improvised. There's a pattern here. We like to improvise quite a bit. So stay tuned for that. You can also support this podcast by leaving comments and reviews. Let other people know about it and how much you enjoyed this conversation. I always end my podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong.